Hi guys, welcome back to another episode of the Just Checking In podcast. This podcast is brought to you by Events, a place where everyone, but especially men and boys, can open up about their mental health issues, break down stigmas, and start conversations with me, your host, Freddie Cocker. Each pod, I check in with a very special guest. We have a natter and a chat about all things mental health, as well as anything and everything else they are passionate about. If it helps that person with their mental health, we discuss it. For a long time on the podcast, I talked about two concepts, toxic masculinity and positive masculinity, and I asked my male guests at the end of every pod what they thought about them. In the former, I wanted to break down the stigma men felt in talking about their mental health and the fear, judgment and abuse, real or imagined, they would receive if they spoke out about their mental health. In the case of the latter, I wanted to challenge the narrative that masculinity itself was inherently toxic, I don't believe it is, and champion qualities that men are stereotypically biologically inclined to possess and lift them higher and amplify them. In the three years I've been doing this podcast, my view on this debate has evolved and I no longer find it helpful to the conversation to ask these questions anymore. I actually think that saying toxic masculinity is the sole reason why men don't talk about their mental health or even take their own life is at best unhelpful and to be honest at worst gaslighting and perhaps even victim blaming them. In this episode, I'm checking in with a journalist called Charlie Peters, who shares my perspective on this by and large. I came across Charlie through a discussion he did on GB News with host Inaya Falarin Iman and author Nina Power about masculinity, and I was keen to get him on afterwards. Charlie is currently a columnist for Mail Plus and has written for the likes of Spiked, The Telegraph and The American Conservative. In this episode, we discuss that GB News interview and the themes he discussed, free speech and cancel culture through a mental health lens. We then talk about a self-described wobble in inverted commas he had during his second year of university, how he's utilised self-development to improve his mental health and better himself, and why we need an individual-based approach to men's mental health, not a one-size-fits-all. So this is how my check-in with Charlie Peters went. Charlie, welcome to the Just Check In pod, mate. Thank you very much for coming on and letting me check in with you. I saw the segment you did on GB News and I just had to get you on to talk about that and also your wider and holistic journey. So first off, how are you, mate, on Easter Sunday? I'm absolutely fantastic, thank you. We've had a week of glorious, sunny England. Amazing. Well, I've been on holiday in Mallorca and one day absolutely pissed it down. So I've had a mix of sunshine and a mix of wet weather. So I'm going back to some nice weather, thankfully. I'm not too burnt. Our off-air chat was such an enjoyable one, mate, and I've been really hyped to get this on since we chatted. So without further delay, are you ready to start the show? Absolutely, let's go. Let's start the pod by talking about your journalism journey, Charlie. So why don't you tell the listeners why you became inspired or fell into journalism, as a lot of my guests seem to do, where your love for maybe writing or storytelling started and the journey to where you are today? Well, I suppose it started first and foremost at university. Uh, I went to Edinburgh University and as many of your listeners will no doubt know, during the middle of the last decade, we suddenly had quite an exciting import of American cultural wars in Britain, and especially on university campuses. Back then, it was really limited to just one major discussion, which was free speech. Who was permitted to speak on campus? What were the realms of acceptable discussion? Who could be involved and what could they discuss? 
And throughout that, I found myself in my first year of university being utterly enthralled by this and mystified at the same time that there were people at university who didn't want to be involved in discussion and debate. And was very lucky I'd come from a school where rigorous discussion was the norm and there was a no-holds-barred approach to engaging each other academically. And then suddenly to arrive at university and find that many people didn't want to actually be academic was quite a shock. So I started campaigning, I imagine. And as a part of that, I got involved with Spiked, uh, an online magazine, which I'm sure many of your listeners will know. In 2015, it was the force for campaigning for free speech on university campuses. This has now become a much bigger debate, a much bigger topic, and many people have adopted it. But really back then, the force was Spiked. And they should take enormous credit for what they've done to promote a bigger liberalizing discussion about free speech on campus. I got stuck in with that and then I enjoyed very much fighting the good fight for free speech and liberalized debate on campus and I enjoyed it so much that I think I fell into a trap of realizing that I could get paid for this <laughs> and <laughs> I could uh, I could gently nurture a career where I was financially rewarded for arguing with people and this has led me down a terrible trap some eight nine years later where that is what happens. So Spike started allowing me to write about other issues. So it wasn't just about free speech on campus. I was allowed to dive into all sorts of other political, cultural curiosities and news items and media buzz stories that people were picking up. And since then, I've been lucky enough to get some bylines in, in other publications, some nationals, some American magazines, plenty of TV and radio. I absolutely love it. I think it's fantastic. I love the, the gladiatorial aspect of debate and discussion. I like knowing that my voice is part of many in, I hope, is making the, well, making the world a better place. To some of my listeners, Charlie, they might think that the issue of free speech has been, quote unquote, hijacked by the right to let problematic individuals spout problematic mm -hmm. things without accountability. So tell me your perspective in response to that claim, perhaps. And do you think we're self-censoring as a society anyway at the moment? I'll take the first question. Has it been hijacked by the right? Well, yes, because the left has given up on free speech. So uh, to what extent it's been hijacked is difficult to say because there's no unified left-wing pro-free speech position, which has been, well, there used to be. I mean, the left was the force for liberalising discussion and debates, especially for women and minorities, for university campuses. But as you well know, there has been a cultural shift whereby the right has become the force for free speech, but partly because of adopting rules of censorship. So now it's typically the case that right-wing voices are more censored than left-wing voices. That wasn't the case in the past, and that's why that mixture of powers was as it was. Are the right pro-free speech just in order to get problematic views across? No, I don't think so. And also that very much depends on what you believe is problematic. I think what lots of right-wing people make, I think, quite sensible, human and rather admirable um, arguments about how the world should be. And then left-wing people who've never heard alternative perspectives completely lose their minds. And so I would say that there's probably a, an uneven level of perception in terms of what is the acceptable parameters for discussion. And there is an extremely punitive perspective from the left on the right about what we think, how we think, and what we believe is the good in the world. And then on the second question, are we self-censoring as a society? And what effect do you think that's having on our collective mental health if it's happening? Mm -hmm. Well, that we are self-censoring is true as an understatement. I think people 
think twice, three times, four times before they speak on, Maybe five on any times. <laughs> Yeah, well, hey, treat yourself to that quintuplet of fear. People are nervous about political discussion, especially about the kind of issues that are big in the media today and in global politics. People are nervous to talk about race and gender. And these are, I mean, for better or worse, I think worse, the topics that dominate our political discussion, our cultural discussion. It is very difficult to have nuanced discussions about these issues when the parameters for acceptable discussion are arbitrated by people who say things like silence is violence. And kind of George Bush 2001 style, you're either with us, you're either with us or against us perspectives on debate. And this is obviously an incredibly unhealthy way of dealing with discussion, but just for the health of the debate, but also for the health of the people involved in it, I think. It can't be good to rack with your mind about the evil of your perspectives when you haven't had a chance to test them. And I think a lot of people get very upset and very distressed when they have to ponder the extent to which they might be evil for mm. thinking differently to their friends and their colleagues. And really, they're ordinary people having quite respectable, in many ways, rather progressive opinions. But because of the censorious and rather punitive approach that we have to discussion, these people enter a quagmire of misery. And that's a grave shame. Let's go back to your career. So you built up your profile by your final year to the point where you had the opportunity to write for The Telegraph, which you mentioned in summer 2016. And you're also writing and living, like you said, in Scotland at the time where there's perhaps not as many journalists competing for the same opportunities and positions, even in somewhere like Manchester, let alone London. Mm -hmm. Did you feel quite lucky at that point or maybe feel quite lucky looking back? And how did your career go from there? Well, I think the BBC has a quota for every show. There must be one slimy, right-wing, posh Englishman on every show. And so there was a limited supply of that in Scotland. And I, I, filled, that, <laughs> <laughs> I, filled, that very, I filled that very happily on a number of shows and debates. And Yeah, I found my opportunities for broadcasting up there were great. When I was a 22-year-old undergraduate, I was on primetime BBC Scotland comedy shows. I'm not a comedian. Not particularly funny, but, you know, just because of the supply, I was able to fit into those slots. This is an issue throughout the country, but especially in Scotland. There is a dearth of right-wing perspectives in journalism, in academia, in policy and politics, in terms of high-status jobs. And so anywhere where you can find young right-wing, dare I say, mildly eloquent characters. So, yeah, that was brilliant. And it gave me a huge opportunity to to test my intellect against lots of people and yeah, it was a fantastic time it, it, it gave me the opportunity to be intellectually curious which i wasn't receiving at university so through all of these magazines newspapers and the broadcasting and the interesting people i was meeting in scotland i felt that was more of a transition into the adult rules of debate and reason than anything that university gave me since 2019, you've worked in editorial and in March 2021, you got your own column for Mail Plus. Now we're going to talk about the world of, or the murky world of columnists in a bit. But how did that initial column come about and how big a moment for you was it? Oh, it was huge. It was fantastic. Well, it gave me an opportunity to be a bit lazy as well, which was fantastic. <laughs> because the, I mean, journalists always complain about this, that we spend so much time pitching instead of thinking and writing we have to we always have to liaise with editors to remind them that we exist and that we actually have ideas that they might like by being a columnist at mail plus had a fantastic editor called rod and every week we just you know bash ideas together have a really informal discussion about what was going on in the world and what i thought about it and i, I had a weekly opportunity to write and think differently to other people 
and I lapped it up. So it was fantastic. So it was a huge moment. And getting to write at least once a week was brilliant. And all too often, I think, the best writers don't write enough. And they are limited by the parameters of discussion, but also by their own laziness. And so it was great to be forced into, like, you've got to think about what's going on in the world. And you've got to look for inspiration where you can. And that kind of energy was brilliant. Let's talk about that murky world of colonists, because this was the first issue that you want to discuss through a mental health lens. Now, being paid well to write for a living is a big enough privilege in the world, I would say, and getting paid hundreds of thousands of pounds, just for your opinion, in some of these columnist cases, I sometimes struggle to even comprehend, to be honest. I imagine it can attract perhaps a certain type of person, Charlie. Is that true? Yes, uh, I think that every every columnist and every every professional journalist really is delighted by narcissism to some degree, <laughs> because you have to love yourself and believe in yourself so much that you think others are willing to pay to not only read your brilliant writing but also pay for your insights and your ideas and I think if you're an all hands any issue opinion writer then that attracts a special degree of arrogance because those people aren't specialists in any topic usually they aren't foreign policy experts they don't have military experience they don't have political experience they're often the sons and daughters of journalists themselves who have through fine education and lots of time spent reading acquired a skill to communicate through the pen. And if you're that kind of person, there is enormous competition for other slots like that. And I think the game can be very bitter, very nasty and uh, uber competitive to a degree where personal slights come out in force. I'm complaining about this, but at the same time, there is nothing I love more than when (laughs) Then one one journalist, one specifically a columnist, turns on another. It produces just like fireworks. In terms, some of the best writing is the rudest writing, right? And I'm thinking specifically now a piece, probably the best piece of 2021 was written by Julie Birchall and, and Spike, where she wrote about a Times columnist. It's called The Silence of the Hacks. Your listeners should read it. I'm not going to talk about the subject in question, but Julie rips her apart. It's all justified, and you feel a, a slight level of guilt in enjoying it so much because she's carrying out a visceral character assassination but as you read it you think yeah she deserves this and you have to appreciate that in this industry there are hundreds if not thousands of people ready and willing to write a visceral character assassination on you so stand by is all i can Mm. say for people who are looking forward to this kind of career is there a particular irony then that some of the journalists and this is on the left and right by the way who might complain about sensitivity or cancel culture or deny it exists are more often than not exhibiting the same behavior when people criticize their work or when others express beliefs they don't like yeah absolutely there is no doubt in my mind that a significant portion of quote-unquote cancel culture is driven by people who are motivated by economic means so if i was talking about just now the character assassinations that are going on in journalism a lot of this culture is driven by a tiny tiny subset of the population who want to ruin other people's lives for their own advancement. This is especially true, I think, with generational gaps in major publishing houses like the New York Times, where late millennial and Gen Z writers are coming up, want to snap up the jobs that- Barry Weiss got it, didn't she? Yeah. yeah. Well, there we go. They want to snap up the jobs. They want to snap up the jobs that some of their competitors have. And so they call them evil and say, well, you know, I want that job and how am I going to get it? Well, I better call my editor a Nazi and get them fired. And then I can have that job myself. So that's a big aspect of it. Whenever I see a journalist or a writer clamoring for kindness 
and gentleness in the workplace. I will always take a little deep dive in their profile. Hashtag be kind is almost always posted by people who are some of the most disgusting and, and rude and, and craven people in the world. So how sad um, is it that it's a red flag now, mate? How sad is that now? Yeah, I, mean? I think it's it's kind of akin to male feminist, right? Whenever <laughs> some of the, the Hollywood people who pump out the most deliriously progressive press releases about intergender relations and how we all need to behave and I'm learning and let's all be lovely and women deserve your support. Simply record their name, wait a couple of years, learn behold, they're a sex offender. So I think there are great similarities between the two. But I, I think it's very exciting how it's often the case that people who want to tell you how to behave the most in the media are often those often the people who are breaking the very rules that they are espousing. The media has always been polarised to some degree across the political spectrum, Charlie. And this is broadsheets online, digital, however you want to go. However, what I think is dangerous now, and this is moving away from cancel culture a little bit, is instead of a different lens being offered to the same issue that perhaps The Guardian, The Mail, Telegraph have a line on, some outlets will now refuse to, whether that's consciously or subconsciously, cover one issue and others may take that gap and fill that vacuum gap. You know, GB News might cover a lot of issues that The Guardian may not and vice versa. Do you think that reinforces echo chambers? Yeah, absolutely. And and, and as soon as you create that gap in discussion, only one other side will take it. And generally, the meme that we have of this is that if you silence people, then extremists will take the space because people who have nothing to lose will be the only people who speak about that particular topic. I think that the most common example we have of this in British society of the last couple of decades is probably the child sexual exploitation scandals in the north of England, especially in in, in Rotherham, where thousands of young girls, we don't know how many, possibly tens of thousands of young girls, often from, quite frankly, a British underclass, those in care, you know, broken homes, the kind of white girls no one in any authority cares about were systematically abused by men predominantly of Pakistani origin. Now, for people who believe very strongly in diversity and liberalising Britain's borders and global Britain becoming more open with the rest of the world and anti-racism, this story is, of course, the worst thing ever. And indeed, journalists at the time were so nervous about it because they they described it as kind of far-right crack cocaine. Well, maybe sometimes right-wingers are correct. And when these stories come along, you should debate them on their merits and you should discuss these topics and put them under the full spotlight, not just for the justice that the girls deserve, but also to prevent nasty voices coming in and dominating the space. Now, in that particular case, a degree of state ferocity and fierceness is needed to tackle these kind of violent perpetrators. And I think most people would want an extreme response. But you won't ever get that if the only people who are dealing with it are extremists, because then the quality of the response will always be dumbed down. It will always be associated with people who are kind of negative in the public eye. So, yes, it creates an echo chamber and silence breeds contempt from the people. And it's filled by evil actors. I want to come back to cancel culture because you are, I don't want to say a victim of it, but you experienced an element of it, which I'll discuss in a second. But when people get attempted cancellations for historical tweets, which has happened to a few people when they were teenagers normally, where does this end, do you think? Because out of sheer panic and being a bit of an idiot when I was in uni, I remember when I was about to join the BBC, I deleted about 
two, three, four thousand tweets out of just panic that someone would find a political joke that I made when I was 18 going to a very left wing university and think that mm-hmm. it expressed my own political opinions. Mm-hmm. But that cancel culture, it's just going to make people, like you said in, in the previous answer, just incredibly fearful. Yes, there is a, a common phrase you'll use, which is the past is a foreign country, right? And that if you went back to 1950s Britain, you would feel like you were in a foreign land. The limits of cancel culture and the reflection, the, the kind of rapid response of the reflection is so quick and so fast changing now that the very recent past is now a foreign country. Jokes that were told five years ago are now worthy of uber political defenestration and rejection from society. So it ends when the people doing it stop being cool, basically, and that is happening because they're getting older. The kind of people who are trying to ruin your life right now are also millennial women who are miming along to Eminem on TikTok. So um, I wouldn't say that that is the culture. That doesn't fill me with a lot of... I don't see that and think, damn, that rocks. Those people are very cool. They should be in charge. And I think for all their faults, Gen Z are now waking up to the fact that cancel culture is incredibly cringe and is being orchestrated by viscerally neurotic, predominantly women in the media who want to ruin someone's life so they can have a nicer job in Manhattan. And when you think about it, it's actually very cringe. And mm. when more people realize that, I think peak woke has happened and it's gradually sliding and all these miserable, narcissistic, evil losers will be old and retiring and sad. I look forward to the day. <laughs> On that note, I want to talk about your own personal experience of what many would call attempted cancellation it was when you wrote an article for an outlet called the american conservative it was provocatively called patreon for porn the rise of OnlyFans." what about this article caused people to get the digital torches out and the pitchforks out and how did it affect your mental health right well yes the aim of twitter is to never be the main character And it felt like for a couple of hours, at least, I was the main character because I wrote this piece for the American Conservative, a fantastic magazine, which offers a lot of opportunities for young writers and believes what I believe, which is also helpful. So I wrote a piece for them about OnlyFans. And this was in, I wrote it in March of 2020. It was published in April. So it was before the platform really went global in terms of news coverage and awareness. And in the pandemic, as you might recall, it was enjoying a surge in popularity. But in the piece I wrote about how a joke, <laughs> a joke, <laughs> saying every now and again the world produces a trend. Uh, if the world would be better under an Islamic caliphate, right? That was, and it was a, a little joke about how liberalism is sliding in such an extreme way that God, wouldn't it be nice for a sort of quasi-religious backlash and response to calm things down? And people who are extremely pro-only fans or sex work or general societal liberalization termed this entire piece as a pro-ISIS article. <laughs> uh, and um, now I would say, firstly, this is, an, this is an incredibly Islamophobic accusation because there are many varieties of caliphate that one could have. You could have, you know, all sorts of alternatives. And for some reason, these critics were keen to believe that the only caliphate you could possibly have would be Daesh Curious. So first and foremost, my critics were deeply racist, I would say, in, in accusing all caliphates of being Daesh adjacent. So that was very rude of them. But also it shows the extent to which, as I was talking about before, people will try and ruin their competitors through any means in order to achieve their aims. 
Now, as an opening line, perhaps I could have been milder, but it's funny and it should be in there and people should be able to have a laugh. And I meet all sorts of columnists and other writers like me who say they don't try and be funny anymore because they're worried that other people just won't take the joke, won't mm. lighten up and enjoy it because there are so many people looking to destroy you for their own advancement. And people are so, people on Twitter are so nakedly political and partisan that they will seek to destroy, and these are just normal people with normal jobs, they will seek to destroy journalists who are part of the other team, right? So I was on the wrong team for a lot of people that day. I even had a porn star write a response to the piece. Some of your listeners may be aware of the artist known as Brandy Love. She wrote a piece in The Federalist. She called me, she, she called me a Christian American. Well, if you're listening right now, you can probably tell that half of that's not true. But she failed to get her facts right. And yeah, it, was, it felt like it was open season on me. So the mental health effect of that was, well, I was, I was 22 years old, 23 years old, living at home in the middle of a pandemic. And lots of people wanted to ruin my life. <laughs> that wasn't very nice. Lots of people wanted to tar me as being pro-ISIS and cut off my career when it was in its nascent stages. And I think that was evil. And it was quite, it was a period of, of light anxiety. But I think I also realised through that experience rather happily that for every evil insanity out there and trying to destroy your life, there are also plenty of good souls who appreciate, A, humour, but also just broader discussion on these major issues. It was a bit of a Hydra situation. For every evil counsellor I encountered, there were two more supporters behind them. So overall, a positive experience. I'll tell more ISIS jokes in the future. And for the listeners, I refuse to confirm or deny whether I know the existence of Brandy Love or her work. <laughs> I've had Jerry Barnett, who's an author who's written about porn censorship and the moves against it in UK society and across the world. And I'm not here to talk about the pros and cons of OnlyFans itself. However, I do want to read out a paragraph from your article, which I've thought about a lot when it comes to the men who use it. And you say, quote, the sad truth of the matter, these women aren't profiteering off their nudity. Internet porn siphoned away the dollars for pixelated flesh market years ago, but rather the illusion of attachment and closeness that lonely young men all too easily fall for. Some of the platform's most popular users will remember to message their clients on their birthdays or phone them after they have recovered from surgery. They might even know their kids' names. Many men have duped themselves into believing this faux intimacy but if their monthly $20 payment stopped rolling in, I doubt they would still have amateur sex workers asking after their pets. Also a bit of a joke there at the end, which I thought was a nice touch. What do you think will happen to these very lonely young men? Imagine probably between the ages of, God knows, 10 to 20 to maybe even 30, when they are continually buying into that fantasy that if they keep giving these women money, they will get some sort of reward from it that will never come sort of like well, maybe are. in a maybe well maybe like you're being in a strip club and you think you can have sex with a stripper the important point is that it's not sex they're purchasing it's emotional satisfaction so they're paying for less loneliness but it's entirely a mirage it's totally fake and it's evil in a way i think because it is creating a sort of a simulacra of what is i think the most beautiful part of life which is love and that false representation of that experience is being peddled by people who know they are conning these men. And I think that action is reprehensible 
um, should be judged. And they are, of course, profiteering off what I think is generally ugliness. These men are have low confidence because they feel they're um, low value men. They weren't born with the greatest privilege of all, which is attractiveness. They have low confidence. And instead of perhaps developing a culture which invites these men to improve and enhance their lives, you can always make your life better. We instead have a, this horrible situation where in a style akin to the hologram love that we saw in, in Blade Runner 2049, a great film many of your listeners will know that I've enjoyed, instead of you know having real human interactions, we are allowing and indeed encouraging young men to have fake ones instead and to have holographic girlfriends. That's regrettable. I want to move on now to the main reason I wanted to get you on, Charlie, was that GB News discussion you had with author Nina Power. I've been trying to get Nina on myself for quite a long time. She's quite hard to reach. Can you tell the listeners what you talked about in that discussion through a mental health lens? So Nina Power has a fantastic book out called What Men Want, What Do Men Want? And I highly recommend you all read it. It's written by a woman. So there is, of course, a first perspective failure there. She perhaps isn't one. And so, as much as I believe that people of all backgrounds can identify and learn from each other, and we should be open-minded about these things, I think there is an element of the experience of being a man, which is best had by being a man. We were on that panel together with Anaya, a GB News host, to talk about the extent to which men are struggling in society. And the main aspect I wanted to raise, and I've been talking about this for years and years, but I've never had a platform to raise it, which was about how we treat men's mental health through a feminine lens and how all too often, I think, there is a sort of demeaning and judgmental approach to men's mental health, which says you are to blame for your sadness because you're being too manly. And you have heard, I'm sure, this trope bandied around about the stiff upper lip and how men are too stubborn and they need to talk more. I think for the most part, this is bullshit and that men need to improve their lives and find more meaning and value and use in them and not just wallow in their misery and talk about things. So many, I think, of the men's mental health charities like Calm and all sorts of other places, they have a a PR campaign around talk to your mates. It's this kind of politics Joe style of like, come on, lads, let's all get together and just chat about it's not good enough. <laughs> it's not good enough. No one actually wants to listen to what men have to say when they do open up, as these people keep begging them to That's do a it. good point. And when they do speak, they'll say, well, I don't feel useful. Society has denigrated the aspects of my identity that I find fantastic. My strength is no longer valued. My capacity to be a helpful member of society is going. My marriages are falling. You know, marriages are falling apart. My ability to be a father is not there. I don't feel useful. Predominantly, I don't feel useful. When you speak to men about why they're struggling, they feel under or unemployed, both in terms of the workplace, but also in terms of their personal relationships. And instead of engaging with these problems and perhaps thinking about ways that we could facilitate a society that reverses a lot of these negative trends, we just say, oh, just talk more. I'll just talk to your mates. It's an entirely facile and nonsense approach to mental health, which treats all men like simple feminine creatures who just need to have a little a little hug and they'll be better oh you've got mental health we'll just talk about it I find it very frustrating and, and 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 the simplicity of the whole conversation is not what we deserve it's not what we need and mm. so I, I when i when i made those points i was flooded with feedback all of it positive that's never happened to me okay <laughs> i get 
I often I often do get lots of feedback from from things I write or or bit of broadcast. I always enjoy it very much. But it was never it's never been the case that every single piece was like thanks for sending this, thanks for doing this. I really appreciate that. Anonymous men I've never spoken to in my life sent me emails or DMs on Twitter to be like I've thought about this for years, but I've never had the opportunity to opportunity to express it. And why you know you put those words in my mouth, you know, and that that was fantastic. It was nice to know that this feeling that I'd had was being shared by so many other men. I think for a lot of them, the main reason for that, just one last thing, is that they've heard so often that they should lose the stiff upper lip. But for a lot of them, that's all they've got left. You know, for a lot of men, their pride and their internal resilience is the last thing they've got. And this incessant campaign for them to to shed that, I think, will will cause their undoing more than their enhancement. It's a really interesting point on that last one. Maybe we need to change the phrase stiff upper lip to something else that's maybe more positive, that's reflective of the male lens or the male experience you also said in the piece that positive depictions of masculinity or conversations about being a man in general are erased from modern commentary so what is a positive depiction of masculinity and what evidence do you have that's being erased well good fathers good brothers good sons <laughs> do we hear a lot about them absolutely not they are denigrated hugely i think in our news media in our kind of cultural discussions in media representation i think Men are all too often bad, evil, and wrong. I mean, men occupy extremes, okay? We generally don't hang around the mean of most issues. Violence, we're either extremely violent or not violent at all. Intelligent, we're generally either extremely intelligent or not intelligent at all. Our curves go like this, right? So in light of that, it's very easy just to pick on the extremes when it comes to men and just say all men are evil, all men. Look at these horrible representations of masculine expression, but ignore the beauty of masculine love. Because I think a lot of people would be surprised by, by the depth of feeling that most men have and would actually be kind of stunned by it. We find it very difficult, I think, to express that. Firstly, there aren't very many male writers in terms of fiction. Fiction is increasingly, I think, a, an area of art reserved for the entertainment of women. That's an area of expression we're losing. Lots of men don't read. <laughs> yeah. That doesn't help. That doesn't help the issue. Broadcasters, where they are men, often tend to be quite feminine, quite camp. I think that's true as an understatement. And so, I think typical modern man isn't reflected very well. I think he finds it difficult to find expressions on himself in everyday news and cultural media. It's not so much a deliberate erasure as a sort of accidental refusal to allow these people to be involved in programming. Mm. That's a shame. That's a shame. The point you made about purpose is something that Warren Farrell talks a lot about heavily in his book, The Boy Crisis, which I'd recommend to all the listeners to go and read. But on that blanket one-size-fits-all approach why do you think when it comes to therapy men are given that because i'll speak from my experience therapy helped me massively i'm a 19.5 out of 10 extrovert i needed someone to talk to i did five rounds of it from age 20 to 27 i know though it doesn't work for every man i know that a lot of men they might need medication or they might need self-development or they might need exercise or they might need something else completely different to that so how did we get to the point where we are now saying that just go to therapy? Well, I think on average, generally speaking, women probably benefit from therapy more than men. I think also the second reason why this is common is because much of our cultural impulses are inspired by or at least entirely determined by America. And in America, therapy is common. It's normal. People, I find, talk about in the US, their therapists as their friends. Oh, I'm just going to go see my therapist now for half an hour. 
you know, it's just a, it's a normal thing to do, even if you're not having any struggles. They just pay to talk to someone about their problems and they, and they treat therapists as their friends. Head of a business, I think, if you're interested in making a bit of dosh and you have an American passport, go and be a therapist because everyone wants to speak to you, basically. And so I think because of that, our natural response is, you know, therapy is what you need. You know, I've already said about why I think that's bad for men, but I think there is also a broader failure where we tell men to try and improve their lives, first and foremost, that a lot of the reasons for your sadness is because you haven't actually tried to improve your life. And they have swallowed the fake pill, which tells them that actually just talking about your problems is a solution. Whenever, you know, you've had a struggle, have lost that depressive impulse by just adding routine. Something as simple as that, just adding routine or just adding exercise and fresh air into their life. Sometimes it can be as simple as that. Or becoming busier. Often employment makes you no longer need therapy, you know, and I think all too often we pathologize quite normal experiences as mental ill health, but actually it's just normal life. I mean, I, the best example I had of this from university was exam stress being treated as a mental illness. And people, oh, exactly, and people um, hugely dumbing down in a way which I found enormously insulting to those who had genuine, you know, mental health disorders. People dumbing down the experience of normal life as a, as a, as a disorder. So, well, I, you know, I, I, I'm really struggling with with my university exams, I need to take two weeks off and I need the university to pay for a therapist to talk about this. It's ridiculous. It is ridiculous. I remember going to the library and there was aromatherapy offer to deal with stress and how you need to therapize your university experience and dog petting to get around life and the infantilizing experience of coloring in being put on to de-stress. These should be adults. <laughs> These should be reasonable people who we are expecting to go into quote unquote, the real world and change society. And we're giving them a background where their first response to any hardship is to therapize and to run away. So mm. yes, that's possibly why therapy is such an immediate and popular response. I have female listeners on this podcast. Good for you. That's good. That's good um, <laughs> it's not just men. I know. I know. I have I'm female listeners. Fantastic. Well, I don't know how many, but I'm sure there are. And I'm sure some of them will listen to this. So I will ask you this question. How, because they, they might be wondering, how can yeah. they support the men in their life better with their mental health? What would you say to them? Because we both know just saying go to therapy isn't always helpful. Yeah. And what yeah. I do sometimes hear is that you know, girl mates I've got will say, oh, my, my partner's struggling. I'm telling him, oh, why don't he just go to therapy? And he refuses and refuses. And they don't seem to think that there's another route out of that. Mm. Well, I would say, you know, no more lectures. <laughs> We've probably had enough lectures about our mental health for about a decade or so. Don't tell us what we need. The impulse to hector instead of listen, I think, is increasingly denigrating um, the mental well-being of men, who often just need, need to facilitate an avenue by which men can approach you with their problems and feel free about it in a way which you can then support beyond just saying, tell me more, you know, or just talk to me more about it. Men often don't know <laughs> problems. <laughs> why they're, we just don't know. And so going to therapy isn't going to help you because you'll just sit there and go, I just feel a bit dreadful, to be honest. Uh, I don't think this is a solution that women can provide. It's a solution that we all need to provide, regardless of our gender. We all need to facilitate a situation whereby people find it easier to find in themselves what they're missing. And they're not told that the one size fits all. The only way to get out of this is to pay someone 60 quid an hour to tell them that you're not feeling great. I would say the same as I'd say to, to men who have made to a struggle, try and facilitate the situation whereby 
they find a, an alternative way of, of dealing with their problem. Before we reflect on your journey, I've got one more question because the two types of stigma I think men face when it comes to talking about their mental health, if they want to, Charlie, is stigma within men and stigma within women. So I think we've made great strides in reducing the stigma amongst men and removing the labels of weak or homophobic driven abuse. We saw we might have, well, I definitely experienced when I was in school, you know, any sort of feminine trait or any sort of expression of femininity that was viewed. You know, I remember boys kind of giving homophobic abuse, if you like, to female lyric in a song, just a really juvenile shit. However, where it gets tricky, I think, and where I don't think there's been a clear answer yet is in the dating market. Now, I've heard a lot from girls in relationships over the years saying their partner doesn't open up to them. And I actually find this avenue quite difficult because I've been so open about my mental health and that's a decision I made. But I do find, you know, disclosure filters quite tricky and when to say and when to not say, blah, 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 blah. However, sometimes what I read them saying that as is, A, that man might just be introverted or doesn't want to talk about their mental health because that's just the way they are. Or B they might actually fear that partner losing romantic interest if they did open up. Is that a fair assessment or not? Yeah, I think that's broadly in line with how I see it. I like that. Disclosure filters, that phrase you use. Is that how you said? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. That's, that's a nice little term. I mean, just think about generally what, what are the traits that women find attractive in men? I think it's probably more along kind of resolute strength than it is about an extremely wide disclosure filter, as it were. Yeah, again, generally speaking, across averages, men should probably be a bit more resolute and have a bit more fortitude than women when it comes to a relationship. Generally speaking, you will earn more. Generally speaking, you'll have to be a source of support and strength, both naturally and mentally. And so, yeah, I think expecting the same levels of expression and the same levels of disclosure is an unhealthy expectation. And again, is part of this blank slate perspective we have towards men and women, where we say we are the same, we're socialized to such a huge degree that we can we can both have the same experiences. It's not true. It's not true at all. And I think a better understanding of man's nature will, will give women more relationship success, more joy in their relationships, where they don't feel like their men are disappointing them just by being themselves. That doesn't mean that I excuse men being wildly closed off and silent and ignoring problems and being rude about it but there's some degree of appreciation that men feel pride very strongly and will defend that pride viscerally might help things along in some way and that in some cases men would rather be alone than lose their pride and so mm. think twice about forcing them into that corner just picking up on that, I talked a lot in the early days of the podcast about toxic masculinity and positive masculinity and trying to reframe masculinity as not a negative. And I've stopped asking those questions because I don't feel it's helpful to the conversation anymore. Mm. But do you think that the phrase toxic masculinity, when used in certain contexts in the current narrative, is actually gaslighting? Yeah, it's a, I think it's an evil term in general. It's just unhealthy. It's hugely unhelpful as well. I hate to sound like one of those guys, but I, re I really do think it's more about bashing men than about improving their lives and improving the experiences of women. The toxic masculinity is a sort of one-size-fits-all denigratory term. I think it's just so unhelpful. And what's especially galling about it is it's often used by people who want to tell you how to improve your life as a man. <laughs> they will tell you, they don't understand that in the first place, they'll tell you how to improve your life as a man, but you're also toxic. 
do you actually care about my well-being and my improvement or are you just looking for an opportunity to bash me all too often i think it's the latter so gaslighting sounds like a fair term to me yes let's reflect then on your journalism journey so so far what has it taught you about yourself do you think i like to win (laughs) (laughs) i like to win so much (laughs) last comment last paragraph yeah i like knowing that i mean perhaps it's because i studied philosophy at university and I've got quite a systematic brain, but I really think that most arguments have a right side and I want to be on that side of it. And I believe in reason. And I think I have a certain degree of truth autism over social harmony. Which <laughs> Truth autism, that's a great one. <laughs> I think, I think, yeah, my levels of truth autism are so strong that I would, would rather be honest about what I think in an issue than keep the room happy, you know? I want to win. I want to be right. And I don't believe in people hiding the truth in order to make their lives easier. And I've learned that I very much don't believe in that myself. We've talked about journalism. Let's dive a bit deeper and talk about your own journey, Charlie. So firstly, I ask all my special guests this question first. Walk me through early life, teenage years, and looking back, were there any early mental health experiences? Who's the Charlie we meet here? probably quite similar to the one you met at nine you would have met at nine to be honest I think I've been quite consistent in my personality throughout I was very lucky in that I went to all boys schools I didn't actually sit in a room with a girl for you know education until I was 19 at university after a gap year so (laughs) I had quite a unique growing up experience in that way I think my quite unique childhood all boys boarding school for secondary school which was quite spartan at some of it but also taught me the value of community and brotherhood which I've retained. No mental health experiences beyond, as I discussed earlier today in this podcast, stress, the normal experiences of stress of growing up, which again, I wouldn't term as a mental health experience. That's just life. That's just normal experiences. So yeah, just all the usual trials and tribulations of of being a young man Mm. discovering himself in the 21st century. The bulk of your mental health difficulties came in your university years, Charlie. You had a wobble as you describe it in 2016 Mm, and 2017. Just as much or as little as you want to say, how did this period affect your mental health and how did you overcome it? Uh, It was a a complete lack of control. Uh, I just felt under a uh, kind of a cloud of misery. (laughs) The kind of easiest way to describe it. It was total incapacitation. It's a kind of unmovable inchoate pain that kind of blocks every path and I found it very strange and you know as you discussed your own experience of this I thought therapy would help and actually I found by doing this I was as I mentioned in the article that you referenced as well I just kind of delved deeper into that same sadness I didn't find a way around it at all the good news is that time is a great healer but also I found a way to make myself busier it actually forced me to kind of get a grip for the first time in my life in a serious way to seek busyness to seek work and people and and kind of it inspired me to be busier Mm. long and short of it that self-development angle is basically in other words the crux of jordan peterson's work which is controversial depending on who you speak to to be honest is there a fundamental Mm. misunderstanding here where he actually understands that stereotypically and not obviously in every case men need to problem solve and take benefit from improving themselves and in his words clean their room and that's why millions of men as well (laughs) as women obviously but millions of men have read his book yeah, I think that's ultimately the case. I, mean, I think he's a fascinating and useful voice. He's a bit troubled recently, but certainly back in those days, that kind of perspective was rare and taps into kind of what you and I have been discussing earlier. 
self-development and self-improvement is often the key to change in these situations and that reflection can only do so much and often can make things significantly worse so yes there's a reason why that writing and that commentary has been so popular for so many and i think i think he has saved lives because he's given he's shown people who had no other alternative in the national conversations about these things that your life could get better reflecting now then on this journey if you could go back and talk to that charlie who was disillusioned with therapy what would you say to him knowing what you do now it gets better first and foremost that's what everyone wants to hear when they're having a <laughs> tough time right <laughs> everyone wants to hear that uh, i guess i just would have adopted the strategy that i i took months to get around to right i would have hurried up the happiness in a way i think more generally i would have told myself to just forgive yourself and be more ready to forgive yourself. I think a lot of people, especially those who are ambitious or who work particularly hard, can be incredibly hard on themselves and seek greatness in all things, from breakfast to the boardroom meeting. And to err is to be human. And so I would have told myself that, don't worry, this is part of life. Embrace it. We've come to our final topic of conversation on the podcast, Charlie, and it's one I try and have with all my special guests if we have time. It is a general chat about mental health. So firstly, how would you say your mental health is at the moment, mate? Nice. A 10. That's the first 10 I've ever had. <laughs> Life is very good for me. I mean, I'm having a great time. I'm well. I have, I have surgery on Wednesdays. I tore my ACL oh. skiing in February, but I'm really excited to fix it. And so I'm just feeling good. I'm feeling great. I have won the lottery in life. I'm a man in Britain in the 21st century. <laughs> I just, every time I think about my life, I feel good about it. I don't know. Perhaps I'm just living in a particularly buoyant and optimistic time. But yeah, I have faith that things will be well. And that faith brings me joy every day. What age do you think you were when you became self-aware of your mental health for the first time? And you realized that the feelings you were having weren't physical and a product of your mental health? Mm, that's a very good question god it's tough isn't it? because I, I have very poor memories of my early childhood i think i lived through life as a sort of ghost until i was in my teenage like a waif yeah i just got exactly i just kind of floated through existence everything was done for me you know like i just had to do exams and turn up at school i remember having absolutely no control over what happened to me whatsoever <laughs> i just did i just dropped off turned up went came home and when you lack a sort of agency and autonomy as you'd expect as a child i think it's quite difficult to be in touch with yourself in a way and you know being aware of your feelings so i imagine it's probably kind of you know as i'm thinking about it now probably in my teenage years yeah probably around the time when i was mm. kind of 14 15 starting to be aware that you know i actually had some responsibility for my own well-being <laughs> given that poor memory then do you remember a, a first conversation about your mental health with someone what did it say who was it with and did it feel like a big moment or did it feel like something quite small and normal to do um god my first conversation I mean, how am i how am i feeling well firstly i had an amazing childhood so i never felt struggles really the most difficult things in my childhood were exams was academic work normal pressures you know occasionally encountering the opposite sex and being a bit mystified but generally speaking my early years were just you know academic pressure and that's fine that was normal i generally think the first time i probably had a conversation about my mental health was probably when i was at university right say my 20s which might sound crazy to you and your listeners but to me it feels completely legitimate and normal because there was no reason for me to think about it let alone be aware of it i just was fine yeah and that conversation as you asked you know the conversation was therapeutic so it was in a way quite what's the mm. word kind of medical 
Yeah. What tools and methods do you use in your own life to improve your mental health then or help you feel better? Which ones have worked? Maybe which ones that you've tried but haven't? A general, and this is, I mean, we haven't touched that at all, but through my kind of army reserve service, I've really enjoyed a level of, I would say, kind of mental analysis where you regulate your feelings in a way. So I'm always dipping between kind of arousal and calm and, and firing up the brain and then loosening those those fires where necessary so internal self-regulation is critical to maintaining a happy state and being focused and i think that a lot of people don't have those strategies and it's not difficult to do but just to be mentally in the present and be aware of yourself and to kind of analyze your own thinking your own modes of feeling and thought is vital to achieving happiness and focus. what is the best book or as i call it mental health bible you've read for your mental health I haven't read any specific <clears throat> mental health books. Oh, there's a so it's tough for me to answer that very usefully. I'm looking at my bookshelf now. Is there anything that jumps out? <laughs> no, not really. Um, <laughs> well, there is a I suppose tales of extreme struggle help put things into perspective, right? And help you realise that you know there's a better way of doing things that actually makes you realise that what you're experiencing probably isn't that bad. <laughs> and often it's the case that other people's suffering makes you compartmentalise your own and regulate more severely your own feelings and i read a lot of hardship because because that's more compelling than happy stories right this is the clue to fiction so i'm sorry i'm not going to give you a particular mental health bible that's right, mate. Don't moment, worry. but a more depressive general answer which is just mm. tales of hardship and there's a final question and i ask this to all my <laughs> guests what more do you think we have to do to ensure men from all backgrounds feel comfortable and safe in opening up or talking about their mental health issues or just their general mental health if they want to do it respect them for who they are first and foremost be aware that they are men and they're different and generally speaking the same rules don't apply to others and you should be aware of how they might approach things and i spoke quite earlier about female friends or trying to sort out their boyfriends or anything like that try and facilitate an arena a space where their expression is respected and doesn't make them feel worse as a man charlie peters thank you so much for coming on the just check in podcast and talking to me mate freddie it's been a pleasure thanks so much well i think that's all we've got time for on this episode of the just check in podcast i want to say a big thank you to charlie for being my special guest on this episode's pod and for letting me check in with him i'll put a link to where you can follow charlie and the links to where you can read the articles we discussed in the show notes remember if you've liked what you heard i'll sign us off by saying give it a share on social media tell your friends tell your work colleagues about it if you like what we're doing here at vent please support us by giving us a five-star rating and review on apple podcasts or you can support us at our patreon by www.patreon.com slash events help uk and go there or you can go to a one-off donation and make that to our gofundme that link is on our link tree and across all of our channels we hope to check in with you again very soon and remember guys it is always okay to vent. Okay.